Section 10 of Historic Waterways, 600 Miles of Canoeing Down the Rock, Fox, and Wisconsin Rivers, by Reuben Gold Thwaites. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Moore. Historic Waterways, 600 Miles of Canoeing, Down the Rock, Fox, and Wisconsin Rivers, by Reuben Gold Thwaites. The Rock River, Chapter 8, The Last Day Out The following day opened brightly. We had breakfast in the tavern kitchen, en famille. The husband, whom we had not met before, was a short, smooth-faced, voluble, overgrown boy sort of man. The mother was dumpy, coarse, and good-natured. They had a greasy, easy-tempered daughter of eighteen, with a frowsy head and a face like a full moon, while the heir of the household, somewhat younger, was a gaping, grinning youth of the simple Simon order, who shoveled mashed potatoes into his mouth alternately with knife and fork, and took bites of bread large enough for a ravenous dog. The old grandmother, with a face like parchment and one gleaming eye, sat in a low rocking chair by the stove, crooning over a corn-cob pipe and using the wood-box for a cuspidor. She had a vinegary, slangy tongue, and being somewhat deaf, would break in upon the conversation with remarks sharper than they were pat. With our host a glib and rapid talker in a swaggering tone, one could not but be much amused as he exhibited a degree of self-appreciation that was decidedly refreshing. He had been a veteran in the War of the Rebellion, he proudly assured us, and pointed with his knife to his discharge paper, which was hung up in an old-looking glass frame by the side of the clock. German, he invariably thus addressed us as though we were a coterie of checker players at a village grocery. Gemin, when I seem how them Johnny Rebs was a usin' our boys in them prison pens down there at Andersonville and Libby and round there, I just says to myself, says I, Joe, my boy, you go now and do something for your country. A crack shot like you is, Joe, says I to myself, as can hit a duck on the wing every time and no mistake. Oughtn't there be a lying around home and doing nothing to put down the rebellion? It's a shame, says I, when our boys is a suffering down there on Mason and Dixie's line. And so I jined, and I stuck her out, Jemin, till the thing was done. They ain't no coward bout me, if I have the saying of it. Were you wounded, sir? asked W. sympathetically. No, I weren't hurt at all, that is, so to speak, wounded. But there were a sort of doctor feller round here last winter, a-stopping at Erie, and he called at my place, and he says, Nothing the matter with you or growing out of the war, says he. And I says, Nothing that I knowed on, says I. I'm a-eatin' my regular vittles when I don't have the shakes, says I. Ah, says he, you've the shakes, he says. And don't you know you catched em in the war? I catched em a-gettin' malaria in the bottoms, says I, a-duck shootin' in which I can hit a bird on the wing every time, and no mistake, says I. Now, he says, hold on a minute. You didn't have shakes afore the war, says he. Not as much, I says, not knowing what the feller was driving at, but some, 
I was a kid then, and kids don't shake much, says I. Hold up, hold up, he says. You're wrong, and you know it. You don't have no memory going back so far about physical conditions, says he. Well, Jim, and sure enough, when I came to think things over and talk it up with the doctor chap, I load he was right. Then he let on he was a claim agent, and I let him try his hand on working up a pension for me, for he says I want to pay nothing unless the thing went through. But I hearn tell down at Erie that they is a going again these private claims nowadays at Washington, and I don't know what my show is. But I ought to have a pension, and no mistake, Jemmin. It wa not no fellers did harder work than me in the war, if I do say it myself. W ventured to ask what battles our host had been in. Well, I went in no regular battle, that is, right in one. There was a few of us detailed to take care of government property near Columbia, South Carolina, when Wade Hampton was a-burning things down there. We was four miles away from the fightin', and I was a just a-achin' to get in there. What I wanted was to get a bead on old Wade himself. And if I do say it myself, the old man would a hunted his hole, Jemmin. When I get a sight on a duck, Jemmin, that duck's mine, and no mistake. And if I'd a sighted Wade Hampton, then good-bye, Wade. I told the captain what I wanted, but he said as how I was more use at taking care of the supplies. That captain hadn't no enterprise about him. Things would have been different at Columbia if I'd had my way, and don't ye forget it. There was heaps of blood spilt unnecessary by us boys of fighting to save the old flag, and we're willing to do it again, Jemmin, and no mistake. The old woman had been listening eagerly to this narrative, evidently quite proud of her boy's achievements, but not hearing all that had been said, she now broke out in shrill high notes. Joe Otter have had a pension he had with his chills tracted in the war. He worked hard, Joe did, a whole ten months doing cavalry service the last year of the war, and he came nigh onto shootin' old Wade Hampton and a makin' a name for himself and perhaps a good office with a title and all that. Only they kept him back with the ammunition wagon, count of the colonel's jealousy, for Joe is a dead shot, ma'am, if I'm his mother as says it, and keeps the family in ducks half the year round. And the colonel knowed Joe was a bilin' over to get to the front. Ah, you were in the cavalry service then? I said to our landlord, by way of helping along the conversation. There was a momentary silence broken by Simple Simon, who wiped his knife on his tongue and made a wild attack on the butter dish. Pa, he drove a mule team for government, and we got a picture in the album took of him when he were just a-goin' into battle, with a big ammunition wagon on behind. Pa, in the picture, is a-ridin' on one of the mules and anyone know him right off. This sudden revelation of the strength of the veteran's claim to glory and a pension put a damper upon his reminiscences of the war, and giving the innocent Simon a savage leer, he soon contrived to turn the conversation upon his wonderful exploits in duck-shooting and fishing, industries in the pursuit of which he, with so many of his fellow farmers on the bottoms, appeared to be more eager than in tilling the soil. It was quite evident that the breakfast we were eating was a special spread in honor of probably the only guests the Quandam Tavern had had these many months. Canoeists must not be too particular about the fare set before them, but on this occasion we were able to swallow but a few mouthfuls of the repast, and our lunch basket was drawn on as soon as we were once more afloat.
it is a great pity that so many farmers' wives are the wretched cooks they are, with an abundance of good materials already about them, and rare opportunities for readily acquiring more. Tens of thousands of rural dames do manage to prepare astonishingly inedible meals, sour, doughy bread, potatoes which, if boiled, are but half-cooked, and if mashed are floated with abominable butter or pasty flour gravy, salt pork either swimming in a bowl of grease or fried to a leathery chip, tea and coffee extremely weak or strong enough to kill an ox, as chance may dictate, and inevitably adulterated beyond recognition, eggs that are spoiled by being fried to the consistency of rubber in a pan of fat deep enough to float doughnuts, while the biscuits are yellow and bitter with saleratus. This bill of fare warranted to destroy the best of appetites will be recognized by too many of my readers as that to be found at the average American farmhouse, although we all doubtless know of some magnificent exceptions which only prove the rule. We establish public cooking schools in our cities, and economists like Edward Atkinson and hygienists like the late D.O. Lewis assiduously explain to the metropolitan poor their processes of making a tempting meal out of nothing. But our most crying need in this country today is a training school for rural housewives, where they may be taught to evolve a respectable and economical spread out of the great abundance with which they are surrounded. It is no wonder that country boys drift to the cities, where they can obtain properly cooked food and live like rational beings. The river continues to widen as we approach the junction with the Mississippi, 39 miles below Erie, and to assume the characteristics of the great river into which it pours its flood. The islands increase in number and in size, some of them being over a mile in length by a quarter of a mile in breadth. The bottoms frequently resolve themselves into wide morasses, thickly studded with great elms, maples, and cottonwoods, among which the spring flood has wrought direful destruction. The scene becomes peculiarly desolate and mournful, often giving one the impression of being far removed from civilization, threading the course of some hitherto unexplored stream. Penetrate the deep fringe of forests and morass on foot, however, and smiling prairies are found beyond, stretching to the horizon and cut up into prosperous farms. The river is here from a half to three-quarters of a mile broad, but the shallows and snags are as numerous as ever, and navigation is continually attended with some danger of being either grounded or capsized. Now and then the banks become firmer with charming vistas of high wooded hills coming down to the water's edge. Broad savannas intervene, decked out with variegated flora, prominent being the elsewhere rare Atragene americana, the spiderwort, the little blue lobelia, and the cupweed. These savannas are apparently overflowed in times of exceptionally high water, and there are evidences that the stream has occasionally changed its course through the sun-baked banks of ashy gray mud in years long past. At Cleveland, a staid little village on an open plain which we reached soon after the dinner hour, there is an unused mill dam going to decay. In the center, the main current has washed out a breadth of three or four rods, through which the pent-up stream rushes with a roar and a hundred whirlpools. It is an ugly crevasse, but a careful examination showed the passage to be feasible, 
so we retreated an eighth of a mile upstream, took our bearings, and went through with a speed that nearly took our breath away and appeared to greatly astonish a half-dozen fishermen idly angling from the dilapidated apron on either side. It was like going through Cleveland on the fast mail. Fourteen miles above the mouth of the rock is the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad Bridge, with Carbon Cliff on the north and Coloma on the south, each one mile from the river. The day had been dark with occasional slight showers and a stiff headwind, so that progress had been slow. We began to deem it worthwhile to inquire about the condition of affairs at the mouth. Under the bridge, sitting on a boulder at the base of the north abutment, an intelligent-appearing man in a yellow-oiled cloth suit, accompanied by a bright-eyed lad, peacefully fished. Stopping to question them, we found them both well informed as to the railway timetables of the vicinity and the topography of the lower river. They told us that the scenery for the next fourteen miles was similar in its dark desolation to that which we had passed through during the day. Also, that owing to the great number of islands and the labyrinth of channels, both in the rock and on the east side of the Mississippi, we should find it practically impossible to know when we had reached the latter. We should doubtless proceed several miles below the mouth of the rock before we noticed that the current was setting persistently south, and then would have an exceedingly difficult task in retracing our course and pulling upstream to our destination, Rock Island, which is six miles north of the delta of the rock. They strongly advised our going into Rock Island by rail. The present landing was the last chance to strike a railway, except at Milan, twelve miles below. It was now so late that we could not hope to reach Milan before dark. There were no stopping places en route, and Milan was farther from Rock Island than either Carbon Cliff or Coloma, with less frequent railway service. For these and other reasons, we decided to accept this advice, and to ship from Coloma. Taking a final spurt down to a ferry landing a quarter of a mile beyond, on the south bank, we beached our canoe at 5.05 p.m., having voyaged 267 miles in somewhat less than seven days and a half. Leaving W. to gossip with the ferryman's wife, who came down to the bank with an armful of smiling twins, to view a craft so strange to her vision, I went up into the country to engage a team to take our boat upon its last portage. After having been gruffly refused by a churlish farmer, who doubtless recognized no difference between a canoeist and a tramp, I struck a bargain with a negro cultivating a cornfield with a span of coal-black mules, and in half an hour he was at the ferry landing with a wagon. Washing out the canoe and chaining in the oars and paddle, we lifted it into the wagon box, piled our baggage on top, and set off over the hills and fields to Coloma, W and I trudging behind the dray, ankle-deep in mud, for the late rains had well moistened the black prairie soil. It was a unique and picturesque procession. In less than an hour, we were in Rock Island, and our canoe was on its way by freight to Portage, preparatory to my tour with our friend the doctor down the Fox River of Green Bay. End of chapter 8, The Last Day Out Recording by Jonathan Moore